0: Hey, folks, welcome back to another episode of The Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, along with Bruce Kelly, for another great episode for you. We are talking today, kicking it off with Dana Wilson, the CEO and founder of Changing How Individuals Prosper. It's a a marketplace for consumers to find advisors of color for the services that they provide, financial advisors, I should say. Uh, We're going to learn all about how Dana Kick this off, what the story is behind it. It's, uh, as she describes it, it's a marketplace for consumers, but it utilizes obviously financial advisors and the financial services industry. Dana, how are you doing? Welcome to the program.
1: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me.
0: Can you tell us a little bit? I know you call this uh, CHIP, I, I, it's the acronym operates under the acronym CHIP, Changing How Individuals Prosper. Give us it's a, a good oh, acronym. Yeah. Dana. Dana.
2: Dana. Oh, thank you. I Chip, appreciate that. You know who doesn't like a chip of something, you know?
1: Oh yeah. Hard to put down. Right. So that that was all of the premise and we can stop there.
0: (laughs) Give us the kind of the history of this. What, uh, what, what, what drove you to do this and how's it working out?
1: Yeah, sure. So a lot of it was just kind of my, my background in the industry. So I've been in the financial industry in totality now for over 15 years. And after starting in banking and leaving the banking industry and jumping into private wealth and wealth management, through a lot of that journey, I was always in spaces where I was the you know, only person of color or only Black woman or even really the only woman in a lot of that environment. And I wanted to create spaces for people of color to exist and be seen in a more intentional manner. And I knew that there were other people that look like me in this industry. And I really wanted to know where they were. And I kept kind of searching for self uh, through a lot of this process as I was matriculating and really growing up in this industry. So banking, the banking world just seemed a little bit more inclusive and stepping into private wealth didn't seem, it just didn't seem to be there. So how do I kind of bridge that gap and, and find myself and see success if I'm not really seeing anyone that looks like me? And that was really kind of how CHIP was was born. It was really out of the need for more visibility and more uh, intentionality within financial services, specifically on the advisory side. And what I learned after working with consumers as well is that to some degree, you know, we also felt kind of invisible there. And it was about how do we bridge these two worlds together to make sure that everyone is able to find each other in a much more efficient Manner that you know is able to you know expand the practices of professionals, and then also ensure that consumers are getting helped and being seen as well, especially consumers of color.
2: Dana, so just from your background, there were you a retail client facing financial advisor?
1: Yes, I was. So I worked so I worked in, in banking and did everything probably under the sun in there, and then I moved over into the investment world. So I was a client facing investment advisor.
2: Where specifically?
1: So I worked at, I started my career um, at SunTrust Investment Services and then moved over to Merrill Lynch for a little bit and then came down to a a smaller firm down on Wall Street where I really kind of launched more of my career as an advisor and then went independent from there. So I was with a firm on my own and then also with Manhattan Wealth Management in New York.
2: Right. So you've done a lot in, in 10 years. 10, yes, 15 I, I
1: years. have. It
0: sounds. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I've,
1: I've been around different uh, elements of the industry. So kind of gotten to see it really full circle.
0: Right. I wanted to also mention that Dana was featured in our most recent issue of Investment News, Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. There's a nice write-up there at investmentnews.com. You get to see a nice photo of her smiling into the camera and uh, talking about her operation, the CHIP marketplace. Dana, tell us a little bit about the marketplace itself. How do consumers find the advisors on this platform? How do advisors get onto this platform? It sounds like a great system, but I guess anybody listening would probably want to know how it works.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we tried to uh, make it as simplistic as possible. So on the consumer side, they're coming onto our platform and they're filling out a very basic questionnaire that's really asking you know who they are. You know their financial goals. If they prefer to work with someone local, or they have no preference. You know if they are looking to work with someone from a pronoun specific opportunity there. So we want people to really feel that there's someone for them in finding their best fit and what their preferences are. Uh, from there, once they submit that questionnaire that, you know, goes directly into our system. And from there, they get their best fit in the professional. So on the professional side, they're filling out somewhat of a similar questionnaire that kind of goes through their background, who they are, what type of business they're running, what type of clients that they work with, where they're registered to do business. And not every professional gets to be on our platform. So we go through a screening process. So we do look at everyone from a compliance standpoint, and that goes down through all professionals. So whether you're in more of a traditional advisory arm, we're checking your licenses, we're making sure that you have an active pr- practice, and you, you know, you're know working in the best interest for your client. And as we were onboarding, I've had several conversations with probably the majority of the individuals on our platform to really get a sense of who they wanted to work with and what types of businesses they were running, so what their expertise is. So getting all of that information and really marriaging that with the, what the consumers are looking for to get their best fit.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. How many people do you have on the platform? How many advisors and how many consumers?
1: Oh, sure. So we're coming out of our beta, which has been great. So we beta tested with about close to 200 professionals. And now we're just really looking to scale up from there. So that's Mm -hmm. really about who's on our platform now. And now we're entering uh, this next phase of growth, which is really exciting and adding on a lot more bells and whistles for not just the consumers, but also the professionals. So we opened up our virtual community to reflect different types of referral roundtables and also looking at launching a educational series that will feature a lot of the professionals from our platform.
0: Is this exclusively focused on on minority people of color or could anybody go on there and look for an advisor?
1: Oh, anyone from any background, from a consumer standpoint can come on and look for an advisor and I think that's the beauty of it. You know, although from a professional side we want to focus on making better efforts in inclusion for financial professionals of color and on a specific focus on black and latinx professionals, but it's extremely important that we start to change the perception from a consumer standpoint. I mean, just because you're a consumer of color doesn't always necessarily mean that you you know want to work with someone who looks like you. I think it's also about the relationship and the fit there. But we know that there is a need when you can kind of come to the table and, you know, not feel like you have to over explain yourself sometimes in different situations, in different cultures. And we recognize that too and think that's it's important, but there have been people from all over the world, all walks of life, looking to wor- work with someone and support different types of businesses that they might not have had access to before.
0: hmm Yeah. There's a... Bruce and I were both journalists first and foremost, and uh, we Speech are. Speak for yourself, oh, Jeff. Yeah, okay, all right. I'm a journalist,
1: <laughs> <laughs> so that's not true then.
0: <laughs> uh, so, um, no, uh, and and we're always looking for sources, and and sometimes they're sources for maybe they know something that only they know, and sometimes they just we need other advisors to chime in on a on a you know a topic that's hot at the moment or something like that. And we have access to FPA and a few other organizations have media, you know, inquiry lines. Do you have anything like that? Because that would be great for reporters like myself to be able to <laughs> see. I think not, have to Always thinking it. about yourself there, Jeff well, Benjamin. I'm actually you know. thinking about Dana and getting more, more kind of uh, exposure to her. Exposure, advice. exactly, exactly. <laughs>
1: No, I appreciate the ask. And yes, absolutely. That is something that we're building into our platform because we want to make sure that there's more voices being heard. I mean, that's really right. the bottom line is that to some degree from a journalist perspective, you know, we see kind of those same types of stories and we want to make sure there's more of an inclusive environment that's being told and there's more visibility around that.
0: Yeah, because if, if you have something like that, that helps us and it helps you it helps the industry not always be represented by the same people or the same type of people in in you know the news reports and other things that we do i mean this is this is the kind of thing that you know helps breed the kind of diversity that i think a lot of the industry is looking for
1: yeah and there's a big need need for it as well i mean you want to hear stories that you just have not heard in journeys and also just start to see us as professionals of color in this industry as experts. You know, there's always that the, the black advisor or the Latinx advisor, and it really just should be the advisor, or the professional and not necessarily a tone around eth- ethnicity to some degree. And we have to work hard to really change that perception and just be seen as professionals. So the more that we're able to do that, share stories, share expertise, I think that goes back to really changing all the things that we want to do, you know, hence the name of, of CHIP. And that's a lot of where that came from, too, really changing how individuals prosper. That's not just for professionals. That also goes back to consumers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a. It, I mean, if, when you get that set up, let us know, because uh, I'll be using the heck out of it. I know I will be. Bruce, you got anything else for, uh, for Dana? Yeah, just a couple of things here, Dana. I think this is fascinating. And real
2: quick to your to your knowledge, has anyone tried to do something like this before
1: uh, not that I've seen in the way that I think we're doing it and from you know from a you know in getting into technology and building out the way from a really grassroots perspective, I just haven't seen that i mean we're not in competition with any organizations that are out there i mean we're we're a startup you know and we're running in that frame of mind in that format. And for us, it's about locking arms with a lot of these organizations and working alongside them because we all need to exist to have change in this industry. There's no way that Chip can jump into this world and think that we can do it ourselves. We have to do this in collaboration because there is organizations that have been around for a while who have been, you know, doing the work. And for us, we're not trying to do all the things that they're doing. We're really coming in as a complement. But sitting at the same table really sends waves and in volumes and a louder message. So I haven't seen it done in the way that we're doing it from, from our end, from a startup perspective. But I think that there are other champions in this industry who have also been doing the work from an organizational perspective. And now we're all just, you know, sitting here together and moving forward.
2: Right. And from a money point of view, I mean, are you all getting paid like as as a recruiter gets paid here? Or are you getting paid for lead generation? Or how, is, how does the compensation structure work for all this? If an advisor gets a client through CHIP, does Chip get a, does the advisor pay for that lead or something? How does that work?
1: Yeah, sure. So we're actually trying to do something a little different. So I know that's kind of like the normal stance from a lead generation platform. But I, I think for us, we're bringing so much more to the table than just that specific focus. So that's one part of what we do. But it's really oh, in the Yes. Do oh absolutely there's there's definitely a free. I mean, we're we're in this to to build up and, and to exist and be what, around. What's the fee
2: structure for the advisor then?
1: Oh, sure. So for individual advisors to come on board, it's $539 annually. And that is kind of you get more of the robust and everything that we have to offer within our platform. And then we also have a community-only or network feature for $549. Uh, which gets you access to our community if you're not either able to be client facing or just kind of want to step in because you're not really at a place where you're trying to continue to grow your practice. We do have launch pricing. So we're doing 15% off of our starter membership. So feel free to you know hop on the website and get more information about that. And people can also onboard as a team as well, uh, oh, not just individually.
2: That's interesting. And last one, you know, the if I'm a Merrill Lynch advisor, a Morgan Stanley advisor, and I'm a, you know, African American or Latin person, is the big bad mothership gonna let me uh be on on chip or, or what?
1: We hope so. I mean, our goal is to partner with these larger firms because it's important that- They're very reluctant
2: be- to give any exposure, though, as you know. Yeah, I mean, you've been all over this. You've been up and, you know, you know the street very well. Oh, yeah. They're very reluctant to share any kind of information <laughs> with their advisors. And, you know, Morgan Stanley has had, you know, they, they were sued last year by their former head of diversity, I believe, was the woman's title and- in. You know, there's so few advisors of color on on Wall Street. Why would if Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch or any of them let that person go to Chip to kind of advertise themselves?
1: Yeah, I mean that's a great point. I mean, I, I think it's important to for firms to work in, in partner with us because again, we're champions for those individuals who are at those firms. And then, you know, although they're not necessarily seen and there's not enough of us there, there still are individuals who are doing great work in building their businesses and want to be seen and need to be seen, honestly. And I think this is how we change the tide is for these companies to step in and be really loud about about the way that they're training and championing their employees that are there and being a little bit more flexible with the things that they can do as far as being able to be seen and not be so siloed and um, hidden in a lot of these companies, we really want them to, you know, be able to be on the platform as well. I mean, it's kind of no different than them being a part of a lot of different other organizations. And our goal is not just for the independence of the world to be in our platform, but also people who are at the Morgan Stanley's and Merrill Lynch's and a lot of these other large big name firms. It's important for their inclusion efforts as well as they continue to grow and also stay competitive in a changing environment where independents are starting to become a lot larger.
0: That's great. That's it for me, Jeff. Yeah, that's uh, that's it for me too, Bruce Kelly. Thanks a lot, Dana. Good stuff. Wish you the most success and uh, we'll be following you along and uh, please uh, build that media inquiry uh, That would be great. Channels that would really so that we be great. Can, uh, we, can, we can start uh, getting some of your advisors into our stories.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's pretty much built out now, so we can talk offline. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dana. Hey there, this is Bruce Kelly. Before we get to our next interview, we just want to mention that on August 19th, There's going to be an investment news webcast, which I think you're going to want to check out. It's called Spotlight on Fintech, and it is sponsored by and featuring Clout and Dokupace. Check out the link in the podcast notes to register. And now we'll resume our regular podcast. Uh, Our next guest this afternoon is Jordan Waxman. He's a co founder of Nucleus Advisors and RIA. Lots of uh, experience in the sports and entertainment world. We wanted to talk to Jordan about recent changes in NCAA rules that affect how college athletes might actually be able to get paid for, not necessarily for the sports that they play, but for the advertising or use of their name around the sport. So first of all, we just want to say hello to Jordan. Jordan, thanks so much for dropping by the podcast.
3: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
2: Jordan, why don't we before we get into the NCAA rule changes, why don't you tell us a little bit about Nucleus Advisors? And I know you work with sports people. I wasn't aware that you work with entertainment people too. So tell us about a little bit about your clientele and how how that makes your practice a little different.
3: Thanks. Yes. Happy to do that. So uh, Nucleus started uh, 27 years ago. We're uh, 17 people. We have about 100 families. We serve two and a half billion of assets under management. And um, a large cohort are what we call athletes, artists and advocates. Uh, They are, you know, entertainers in various fields, everything from comedy to films and music to uh, professional athletes. And also those we consider advocates, you know, people whose word you would follow if you heard it. So that cohort is, uh, you know, it's, an, it's very interesting. They are, they're the same as entrepreneurs who are building their wealth in different directions other than the fact that they have a bullseye on their back and, uh, and definitely need to worry about an image and likeness and protecting those. Right.
2: And you're part of the NFL Players Association list of approved financial advisors, right?
3: I have been for several years. We we started working with athletes decades ago and uh, created a, what I'd call a playbook for athletes to help them throughout the arc of their career. Now that arc is moving a little bit further back into college, so we can be helpful there and
2: Could you tell us what the rule change here is for the NCAA? And I think you've been kind of studying up on this too, right, the last time we talked. So what has the NCAA done and what is Jordan Waxman doing to get his arms around this? Uh, Interesting.
3: So, uh, yeah, every time there's a major schism in the world, whether that was uh, 9-11 or the credit crisis or COVID, I see that as an opportunity to just sort of reflect and connect with what I don't know. I'd realized that I'd been helping athletes and advocates and artists for for years and years and really wasn't as knowledgeable about sports law and uh, intellectual property and media distribution and music law and all those things that are really important to our clients. So I fired myself as the CEO of my company hired a CEO. It's actually uh, someone with 30 years of experience and is running an incredible job running our company. And I went back to school and got a master's degree in entertainment art at sports law at the University of Miami, which was fantastic. And the sports law track was was just unbelievable. So that's where you know all the discussion around name, image, and likeness took place for me about a year ago. You know, this is not a new issue. It really began in 1984 with uh, a fight that uh, the Board of Regents had at the University of Oklahoma and other other schools about limiting TV rights for NCAA schools. And the, and the big schools, the big football programs wanted to have a say in the TV rights, and the NCAAs had the ability to limit that. And so the Supreme Court said that that was an unreasonable restraint of trade. The goal of protecting amateurism was not accomplished by what the NCAA said, and which was actually limiting the TV rights. So, and and the Supreme Court had not heard a case around antitrust until last December, when the Alston case finally came back to the Supreme Court. They they um, decided to hear it. So this thing has been around for a while. In fact, I don't know if if you recall, but Ed O'Bannon was a, a you know very well known UCLA basketball player in the '90s and. He saw himself in a, an EA sports basketball video game. Right. And I do remember he was, that. was yep. after he stopped playing and, and said, hey, wait a minute. Don't I have the right to, to my own publicity? I, even though it took place in the NCAA, you know, 14 years before, or something like that. And so then uh, others joined on to that. And he didn't. He found out
2: he didn't, right?
3: Didn't that's right. So, but it got into a conversation of what can the what can the NCAA give to the players, the scholarships, full cost of attendance. So, and the Supreme Court did, did not hear the case. They, they it, it went all the way up at. To the Ninth Circuit, and then it was not covered at the, at the Supreme Court. But, so but we,
2: just the point is, the NCAA has been very reluctant in any way to allow athletes to make money off of their name, image, or rights, well, the, right?
3: Well, the thing is, the thing is, these are all antitrust cases because in any other business, if you have a body that says we are going to limit competition or limit the the wages that a class of people can get, that's that is pure and simply an antitrust case. So you can't fix wages, uh, you can't collude, you know, and the NCAA says, well, we can because we have this thing called the charter. And as long as it protects the amateurism in sports, you know, it should be allowed. But the thing is, that's gotten eroded and eroded over the years. So the NCAA has given, it went from one-year scholarships to fully four-year scholarships, books were included, all kinds of other things were included. And along the way, in this 35-year span, you had things like, you know, a player's grandfather passes away and wants to go to the funeral. And the coach—I won't—I won't name the case. It's not important. But the coach buys dinner for the guy as he's on his way to the bus. And the coach gets sanctioned by the NCAA for for something that's outside of the scope of 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 the uh, college athletics and the college uh, amateur rules. And so the NCAA has wielded a lot of power for a long time. And just now, you're getting these cases unpacked where. Well, wait a second. If you're able to give this much money and this much scholarship money and these other things, why can't you allow the players to exploit? So finally, the Supreme Court last year heard the Alston case and decided that yes, in fact, that you could potentially license your name, your image, your likeness to various various things. That now the rules of the road have not been agreed upon, but in the meantime. All of these state legislators, you know, Gavin Newsom and Herod from Colorado and Ron DeSantis in Florida, they're starting to go out and proactively pass bills that say, hey, athletes, why don't you come to our state schools and we will we will have the op- you will have the opportunity to get your name, image and likeness license. Now, they're not supposed to use it as a recruiting tool, but they are. And so obviously, yeah. So you're seeing federal legislation, you're seeing state legislation. All of the you know, pretty much all of these senators and, and congresspeople from from across the aisle are coming in and saying, Hey, yes, we wanna we wanna have something, some kind of bill of rights for the students, something. So look, it's early stages. I think we'll have some excess going on here. But for advisors, this is definitely something where if you have the ear of young you know, next gen players, if you will, next gen athletes, you have to work with them. And there are various platforms that they can plug into and, and other opportunities where they can actually start to build a career early. And that means it's a more sustainable long-term strategy for them as, as potential, uh, they'll have a longer career and they can extend their, their, uh, marketability.
2: Right. So my concern, I think if I, you know, from from where I sit in the as a reporter, is that these guys, the the young athletes could be harmed financially in some way by hooking up with people who want to take advantage of this new rule or there is change in rules or pending changes in rules. And whenever there's legislation made, right, there's always it seems to be holes in the legislation that allow for certain practices or don't allow for certain practices, right? So, I mean, is this like a potential, I mean, what's the marketplace? How many athletes do you think in, in college right now could expect to see significant paydays out of this? Is it 100 athletes? Is it 500 well, um, there's already, Kate, you've seen the stories, right, about athletes leaving one state, going from one state to another to play football, you know, in a state that's more amenable to their name, image, likeness, uh, marketing and licensing.
3: Well, so that's it. See, so there are two questions. Like one is how big is the market? And the second is how do you how do you guard against abuse? So on the second issue about the abuse, there are. Are already pretty well ingrained policies at the NCA about when and if you can speak to an agent. Uh, what is a conversation with an agent versus what is a conversation with some trusted advisor or lawyer or someone else who's not acting in the capacity as an agent? Cam, there's a Cam Newton case that was a very interesting case. It's inter- you know it's good good to read up uh, that what happened there. I think a lot of people know the story. But the administrative framework about what is considered that kind of conversation and and the abuse that can take place, that's pretty well understood. But people who are coming to these schools, you know, there are platforms for the athletes to plug into to get uh, marketing deals. Those are easier to vet. The individuals coming with different things are harder to vet. The NCAA does not have its act together in terms of the rules of the road yet. My hunch is it'll take a while, and in the meantime, as you said, states are coming out and they're pro, they're, they're launching their own offensive to get these people. As far as the market goes, I think the market's a lot bigger than you think because I look at it differently. You know I'm a yeah, huge how do you mean what, what, what do you mean well, by that I'm a huge fan of the Olympics. I was a varsity swimmer growing up. And if I thought about although I came to the sport kind of late, but I think about all the age group swimmers and age group tennis players and high school athletes who if they could have one-on-one training sessions with Olympic athletes or Stanford's top tennis players or or Stanford's swim team or University of Texas swim team or the, you know, USC volleyball team. You know, you think about the market for helping younger people with their skills, that is a totally underserved market. And I just became an investor in a company that I think is going to address that. That to me is an opportunity to do some good. And also think about it, the the varsity swimmers, unless you're Michael Phelps or maybe Caleb Dressel, the the top names in, in, in swimming, there aren't that many professional, or Katie Ledecky, there aren't many professional swimmers. But think about all the college swimmers who could make a living running training camps or putting their content on the web or whatever it is? And think about all the the athletics, all the sports. Most of it is going to be, you know, the top running back from Alabama is going to get the top quarterbacks from the top ten schools. You know, they'll have they're they're more name brands because there are television rights. Just basketball and football are the big programs. Football is the largest program. It takes up you know almost fifty percent of every D one school's roster of, uh, of scholarships, and uh, and there are 90-person teams. So they, they get more television coverage, but so does basketball. You're starting to get a little bit more coverage in other sports. So those will be the ones where I think there's most, uh, to they're bigger dollar deals to have. But I think it's a more what I call democratic or homogenized, homogenistic, if you will, or like larger sort of scale, much more panoramic opportunity that can supplement the students and plenty of these programs by the way they give very small scholarships it's not like the football program per se because many of those other programs have been cut you know title IX created equality in these various programs but but many of the many of these programs whether it's volleyball or swimming or the you know or field hockey or whatever they just get cut and they become club sports right
2: so you're saying that there's basically there could be different tiers of athletes who are affected in different ways and they can generate revenue make some money through this there's a top tier guys who are going to get the all the attention the 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 quarterbacks and the running backs but there's plenty of other people is is what you're saying who could do training coaching
3: The ncaa athlete with the highest presence in social media is not a d1 sports i think she's I want to say, volleyball. I'm, I'm, I can't remember the, the woman's name, but she, this young woman has like millions of followers because of the things she posts. And it may or may not be about the sport itself. It's her presence, but the ability to monetize her presence previously interfered with her scholarship money and her amateur status.
2: Yeah, that's fascinating. It's fac- I, I think it's just, a, it's a whole new market in a way for people. Jeff, did you have any um, yes. questions for, for Jordan Waxman?
0: Hey, Jordan, this is – as I originally start, started to see this thing unfold, I kind of looked at it as, as the NCAA is currently capturing money through their marketing processes that could go or some people say should go to the student-athletes. What What is the likelihood that some of these schools are going to change their marketing programs if – I mean, why should this, you know the schools – our marketing, they're making the efforts. They're getting these, these images and likenesses on video games or whatever, putting them on jerseys that they sell. The school's putting forth all the money. Granted, the kid is the athlete, but the school's doing the marketing program. What are the chances that the schools are just going to say, well, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to promote your likeness anymore. You're going to have to do that on your own. You can get the money for it, but you're going to have to do it on your, know, your own. We're not going to, University of Michigan is not going to be selling your, your football jerseys anymore.
3: Oh, I don't, I'm not so sure about that. I, I I hear your your point, and I've heard that argument before, but I'm not so sure that the university is going to stop marketing because all of the money from these TV contracts goes to the eventually goes to the schools and boosts supporting these programs to make them more interesting. And what the school says to the athlete, by the way, and the reason this was their argument is is hey, you know, especially the D1 programs, we're giving you a national marketing. We're, we're giving the opportunity to, to to appear on television and on a nationally televised game. Where else are you going to get that kind of exposure? But the thing is, where the yeah,
2: but it's the kids or the the people are tuning in
3: to see the kids and listening oh, through the Budweiser ads, maybe you because know. of the kids. You Don't know, it's not because the kid is wearing a, a a sweater that says the name. Of the university, and if the if the NCA athlete wants to go and, and market his or her name image and likeness, currently they're not allowed to wear logoed anything logoed with the school, and they cannot use the name of the school in their name image and likeness. so there's a fight going on just around that specific issue you're talking about is like who's spending and who's getting the benefit. I think it's hard for the student to say with in all fairness that they're not getting something out of this first of all. The NCAA's position all along for 100 years has been that it's about the education. And it's about the amateur athlete. So you're both amateur and an athlete, but you're a student athlete. And so the idea there is you're getting an education that's paid for, and you're getting all these other opportunities that are paid for by the, so on and so forth. That's a lie, right. because when the money comes in for the bowl games or whatever, you know, a disproportionate amount goes to the to those top programs as well. So I don't think they're complaining about it. But, yes, there is a fight going on about how how much you can draw attention to the fact that you are playing for that team.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you think, and this is a, you know, I admit it's a quantum leap, but I'm sure this has been talked about ad nauseum as well. Why not just separate the school part from the sports part? You could still be, you know, playing for the University of North Carolina, but you're not attending classes. You're just going there to play football. And when you're done playing football, you can do something else. Maybe go pro, or you could have the option of being what it would become a hybrid where you actually play the sport and go to school. Because it seems like the the value of these scholarships that so many people are 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 bellyaching about their student loan debt. That's a lot of value in all that, the books and the school, you know, the the education part
3: look good good point i get it uh, but the average career of an nfl player with a college degree or without one is roughly 3 to 4 years and so that college degree is worth a lot more than a than an athletic career it's going to it's they're going to have to change we we work with athletes who have been through very successful careers and we've been through with athletes who have been through very short careers and also uh, i one of my one of our clients died in a plane crash and it was late in his career, but it was, that's it. 35 years old. And, and that's all the, you know, that's all that he can contribute to his family and the family's relying on whatever he's been able to save over those years. Uh, and that we've been able to, to, to properly plan for. And so I get it. But if you separate the athletics from the academics, the whole thing unravels and the NCAA has no interest in that. And so as long as the NCAA is the rule governing body, there is not going to that is never going to happen. And these rules have been around for a hundred years. They've been developed. The NCAA has come, you know, has a, a fairly strong hand, but it will never happen. And so I think what you have to sort of come away with here is that it's not just scholarship money that the students can avail themselves of. That's going to be valuable, and I think valuable in many different ways. But also, they will be able to somehow market themselves in somewhat restricted ways um, and but start to at least earn some some cash before they become pros or in some cases, like I said, you know the tennis team or the swim team or the volleyball team, you know they aren't really ever going to have a, a a huge professional career. There are relatively few, for example, college tennis players who've become top 20 players. I mean John McEnroe is an exception but And there are some others. But but by and large, these people have they're not they're going to have to make their living another way or.
2: Yeah. But think of their following on Facebook, Jordan. Right. I mean, like you were pointing this one example of this of this athlete, people on Instagram or Facebook could have thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers, you know, who are volleyball or tennis or college hockey players or something, you know, so. Why not let those people try to earn some money off of their name, image, and likeness? Uh,
3: I and I agree, and I agree, and, and but but the reason is that the the reason that this has all happened, keep in mind, is it's an antitrust issue. NCAA has had an exception to the antitrust issue because they said it's in the interest of keeping the amateur status of the athlete. Now, the other thing the NCAA says is, hey, we want the you know, the number one draft pick basketball or football player to be sitting next to Susie nerd or, or Joey nerd in, in the, you know, in the, in psych 101. And it should be that they're all having the college experience. Nothing against nerds. Okay. By the way, you know,
0: Yeah, Yeah. well, there goes our, our potential (laughs) sponsorship from nerds. Nerds
3: are nerds. So, um, as a kind of economics nerd, I, I you know there's my point is that they're supposed to have the same experience at college, right? In reality, everybody knows who the top picks are, especially well they're kind of easy to spot. But you know what I'm saying, and so um, that so that's what the NCAA says is they want to give everybody the opportunity to learn, they want everybody to have an academic experience. But in reality, yes, the the fact that they keep all of the dollars that are created by the name, image, likeness of the players during their careers and after their careers, like Ed O'Bannon and, and all the others who joined that that lawsuit, it was a class action suit, yeah, that's not going to fly anymore. And so the Supreme Court finally came down on it and we're seeing legislation come both at the state and federal level. And so I think the floodgates, you know, there's a crack in the floodgates. They are about to open. There will always be some, you know, there will always be problems or, or abuses there. But by and large, uh, it's an open field at this point, and, and advisors have to know how to navigate it. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. Jeff, you have
2: anything else for Jordan
0: before we yeah, wrap it up? Yeah, I got a couple more things here, Jordan. The, you, you talked about – I know that you're part of that, uh, that group of financial advisors that is qualified or certified in some way to work with NFL players. Um, and that's a relatively small group. I've read about that and written a little bit about it. Do you think that there's a potential to see some kind of NCAA version of that?
3: Yes, there is talk of that. There's definitely talk mm-hmm. of that. The, the issue is, what do you mean talking? Well, I think it's been it's it's been talked about in the, in our in uh, sports law circles. I talked about it in some of our classes that that in order to curb abuses, you're going to want to have to you have people who are in these marketing programs as far as name, image, and likeness. They have to be vetted somehow by the NCAA come and are giving uh, financial advice should be vetted by the NCAA. I think that will come eventually. The problem is that, you know, NCAA athletes are not supposed to speak to agents anyway. So why would they be speaking to financial advisors? But they will be speaking to your financial advisors. Will the NCAA get its act together before the NHL or before the NBA or before the Major League Baseball? That would be kind of curious, don't you think? The NFL is the only league that requires its advisors to be certified as either financial planners or I think it's chartered financial analysts. Or this, I think the
2: firm, the new change, the change recently at the NFL about a year ago was, yeah, each firm had to have at least one chartered CFA, chartered financial analyst, and one planner. Right, so that's kind of, and then they also opened up the doors to I think Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and included them as institutions for the first time.
3: Right. So look, at least the NFL got its act together. And I think it's super important that they did. There is plenty of abuse there. There are very short careers there. The NFL has specific rules and they're very generous about their retirement benefits for, for athletes and so on. The other leagues have not really pressed on the issue. And I've talked to uh, senior officials in in these various leagues and, and, I offered to help with a curriculum that could help the players understand what their options were, what their planning responsibilities and opportunities are. And it hasn't happened yet. So for the NCAA to come up with this first it would be super curious to me, but but, but beneficial to the, to the student-athletes for sure.
0: Well, I just have one more thing for you. And this is kind of in the category of, of a fun fact or trivia question for me. The Olympics just wrapped up or... Maybe they're still going on for all I know. I wasn't really paying that much <laughs> attention. But, but I think they're uh, over, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. it was a pretty quiet year for the Olympics. But anyway, what the heck ever happened to am- amateur athletes competing in the Olympics?
3: Oh, well, well, that's interesting. So you mean you mean when did they allow?
0: Yeah, they yeah pro basketball players, was, pro golfers. It happened.
3: Know. That's really interesting. It's basically the dream team. I think was the first. I think it was 1992, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, that professional athletes could play, and it was basketball that broke open the seal. Yeah. Now, and, um, the, the so that so that's happened. Now the question: so there are plenty of college athletes who compete. The college athletes who've declared that they're pro, and there are plenty of those as well, obviously can't compete for their colleges anymore. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's interesting, you know, uh, Katie Ledecky, I think she just graduated from Stanford, but, or she was swimming for Stanford just up to, up to last year, but she's definitely making a lot of money from endorsements. So the question is like, you know, are there any more, your question is, are there any more amateurs yeah. in the Olympics? Well, I don't know of any professional hammer throwers or <laughs> shot putters. Jeff, deep. you got
2: to remember the Soviet hockey team from the sixties oh, and seventies. I Those guys were pros. Sure. The Cuban, yeah. the Cuban boxers, man. From the seventies, I understand that oh, drove it. Week.
0: But I'm just saying, we used to maintain amateur status in this country yeah. Yeah, that's, up until yeah, that's, done.
3: that's uh, we. Are, but the then you you know Barcelona came and you wanted to see the dream team play basketball. Uh, that's it. Shackles were off, and and the thing is, the United States was. You know, living by the rules, but there are plenty of other countries where the state the state-run athletic programs they were paying their athletes, you know, handily to train and compete for the yeah. country. You know, the the East Germans the the before the wall fell, the the Russians. You know, these were all to name two examples where everything was paid for the lodging. Probably their families were taken care of. You know, they didn't. They never had to buy a meal. So they, they were, for all intents and purposes, they were pro. So at, at some point, the U.S. said, "Hey, look, you know, if we're going to level the playing field," and then uh, and then after that, it's sort of the, the floodgates opened up. So you know, who, who won the who won the golf in the uh, Olympics? Right? It was uh, two Americans won the golf. They're both pros. They both won uh, major golf tournaments. So so it's 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 just basically the best athletes from around the world. They don't always win. You know, the pros don't always win. Uh, and certainly the best pros don't always win. Djokovic didn't win the gold medal this year. He got bounced, I think, in the quarters. But, uh-huh. uh, you know, that's a good that's a good question, though. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, good stuff, Jordan. Really interesting. Yeah, thank you people. so much, Jordan. Anytime, guys. Anytime.
3: Really, thanks for having me.
2: All right, Jeff. That was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our special guests, of course, Dana Wilson and Jordan Laxman. We also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our very own producer. If you like podcasts, you can find this podcast at investmentnews.com. You can also find it at Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. If you want to query Jeff Benjamin, reach out to him on Twitter. His handle is at Benji Ryder. Mine is at BD News Guy. Stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week.